So as I said, um, we're just starting today. Um, again, we have four Sundays before Ash Wednesday, which again, is kind of crazy to me. It seems like it was just a week ago that we were in Christmas. And, um, but the, this, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, the series is on work. And so it's going to be, it's called Everybody's Working because that's the truth. Everybody is working. Um, every single person. The one thing that kind of marks all of our lives, basically every one of our lives, is our lives are marked by work. And everybody is working. In fact, you might know this already, but by the end of an average American human being's life, you typically, the average American works roughly 90,000 hours in their lifetime. That's, that's half of your waking life you spend at work. Um, you know, in fact, uh, you know, even we have the 40 hour work week and all that kind of stuff. But again, right now in America, 86% of men work over 40 hours a week and 66% of women work over 40 hours a week. This is kind of one of the things we do. Even though, even though since 19, there's some statistics, that's to get everyone warmed up. I don't know if you know what that's for. That's what it's for. Um, 1950, since between 1950 and now, the average American worker has increased productivity over 400%. That means that workers now in 2016 are 400% more productive than workers in 1950, even though we work more than anyone's ever worked. In fact, um, even though in 1960, only 20% of all families had both mom and dad, husband and wife, out in the workforce. Right now, um, most families, 70%, 70, 70% of families don't just have both husband and wife in the workforce. They need both husband and wife in the workforce because you just can't afford to live without this because we have, we've created this society in which people need to work and everybody is working. We're working so much that we're essentially working ourselves to death. I don't know if you knew this, but um, in Japan, came across this, this like statistic which just blew my mind. In Japan, roughly something like 10,000 people a year drop dead in Japan due to overwork. 10,000 people a year drop dead in Japan due to, so much so that they actually came up with a word for it. It's called karoshi. Instead of just saying they died from overwork, they made it into one word because it happens so often. Just remarkable. Now, what's remarkable is not just the fact that that many people die just from overwork. It's This is remarkable. The average American, that's what happens in Japan, but the, in the United States, the average American works 137 more hours per year than the average Japanese worker, where 10,000 people a year die from overwork. We work roughly... 137 hours per year more than in Japan. We work about um, 260 hours more per year than people in the UK. And we, this is the one that just blows my mind, makes me want to move to France, that we work an average of 499 more hours per year than a French worker, which is, that's three solid weeks. That's three weeks of 24 hour days that we're spending working and not eating baguettes, um, which I just wish, <laughs> no, we work so much. We work so much, but one of the recent studies came out and said this. How much do we enjoy our work? And this, this survey came back, the study came back and said, only 10%, and now 90,000 hours of your life are going to be spending, be spent working, and only 10% of Americans feel engaged by their work. Only 10% of Americans who spend 90,000 hours of their life in how many lives? One life. Of their one life, they spend 90,000 hours and only 10% of Americans are engaged by their work. That's not even like love it. That's not even passionate. They're just engaged by it. 60% are not engaged by it. And there's a 30, roughly 30% that are not just not engaged, but they're like openly hostile towards their, like they hate their job. It's one of those. So 10% are like, I'm engaged by this. 60%, I'm not engaged. 30% are actively hostile 
towards their work. Everybody's working. But not everyone's loving their work. And not everyone knows how to work. So everybody's working, but what are we working for? What we're going to do in the next four weeks is we're going to talk about, does the Bible, has the Bible presented us with like a Catholic theology of work? Is there such a thing as like a biblical vision for work at what work is supposed to be? Or is it just something we all have to endure, put in your 90,000 hours, and then say hi to the worms, you know? But is there something more that we can get out of this? Is there something more that we can get out of work? And I think there is. Because the crazy thing is, most of us see work as a curse. But if you go back to the beginning, here's where the theology of work comes from. The biblical view of work comes from. If you go back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, work is not a curse. Work is actually a blessing. In the beginning, before the fall, there was work before the fall. You know, God made Adam and Eve, put him in the garden. He didn't just say, okay, frolic. You know, lie in the grass and like pick fruit. He, God, here's the crazy thing. God is depicted in Genesis 1 and chapter and Genesis 2. He's depicted as a worker. Like he went to work in creating the universe. In fact, so much so that it says, and then on the seventh day, God rested from all of his what? All of his work. So God is actually, in Isaiah 62, today's first reading, it says that God is a builder and he builds things, he makes things. God is a worker. And who is made in God's image and likeness? We are. So if God is a worker and we're, we're made in God's image and likeness, that means that we are made for work. This is actually one of God's blessings. It's not one of his curses. This actually is one of the ways in which we get to image God. In fact, when we work, what it's supposed to be is it's supposed to be us co-working with God. It's supposed to be us acting as God's partners in creating something good, creating something great. In fact, the very first commandment that God gives man puts him in the garden and says, now here's the garden. Cultivate and care for it. Here's the garden. Go to work. Cultivate and care. And that's actually these two Hebrew words we're going to come to again and again in the next four weeks. Abogadah. What's it again? Let me. My Hebrew is rusty. Abogadah is to to cultivate is to abogadah. Serve this earth. Serve this work. Do this work. Abogadah and care for it is shama. So abogadah and shama. This place. This work. Go to work. The very first command of God before the fall is let's be co-workers. Let's create something great. Let's create something good. In the beginning, work is a blessing. Which means what? That means that you're made for work. Like work is actually a good thing. You're made for work. Which is probably why, um, maybe you had this experience over break. Break is, is shorter this year than it was last year, which was frustrating to me. But, but here's what happens typically on break is you just rest, right? You crash after the semester. And then as kind of the days go on, as the weeks kind of tick by, pretty soon you're getting antsy, right? And you're like, it's, that's enough resting. And you start going to your mom and dad and say, can you, is there anything you want me to do? Like, can I just do something that so much so that we get back, we're just ready to go to work when it comes to this semester. Because why? Because we're made for work. There's something, there's actually something, there's some kind of work that can be dehumanizing. We're going to talk about that today. But there's something dehumanizing about not working. In fact, not only are you made for work, in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, all human beings are made for at least three things. You're made for labor. We talked about that. You're made for leisure as well. And you're made for love. Again, every human being is made for at least three things. You're made for labor, you're made for leisure, and you're made for love. Made for labor, made for leisure. Leisure, of course, because it says on the seventh day, God rested. And you're made in God's image and likeness, so you get to rest. Um, not only that, it says that Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the afternoon, which basically means they got to take a siesta with God. So leisure. And then what's one of the great commandments? One of the commandments is 
on the seventh day, you need to rest. So you're made for labor, but you're also made for leisure. And then, of course, we're made for love. Because why? Because God is love. And if you're made in God's image and likeness, that means you're made for a relationship. That means you're made for love as well, which is crazy. If these are the three things that we're made for, these are also the three things that we typically, as human beings, get massively wrong. Like, can you think of anything else that we mess up more than our labor, our leisure, or our love? Think about our leisure. Again, we either disregard these things as worthless or we're tempted to worship them. Like, leisure. We either don't get any of it. No, I'm going to rest when I'm dead. Or you work so hard that you collapse, right? And you can't think of anything to do except binge watch Netflix. Like, you can't do anything else with your time except just like, I'm just going to collapse and I'll eat everything I can see. I'm going to drink everything I can see. It describes the last four weeks. Um, just this recognition. We don't know what to do with this. Because we're made for it, but we get it so wrong. Love, same kind of thing. We're made for love. And we're tempted either to use people and treat them as nothing or to look at our relationships and treat them as everything. We know those people, right? That, that they treat their relationship, their romantic relationship, that's going to be the thing that fulfills them. That's going to be the thing that gives them their identity. We do this when it comes to leisure. We do it when it comes to our love. And of course, we do it when it comes to labor. We either fall into the trap of thinking that no work is just meaningless. It's just drudgery. Or work gives me my identity. It gives me my happiness. In fact, we either can think of work as just something you got to do and just suck it up and, and go to it, or we think of work as this is what's going to fulfill me. And I'm not even just talking about post-college work. I'm talking about like in-college work. I remember when I first heard the term busy work. I was like, oh, the teacher just gives you busy work. And I thought, that's, I've never even thought of that. Like work that would be meaningless. I always thought that teachers could be trusted and they, everything they ask you to do is like, well, there must be a reason behind it. But sometimes... You can think in your classes that everything they give you is what? It's just all busy work. It's just meaningless drudgery. Or you can fall into the trap of thinking, if I don't get an A in absolutely every single class, on every single paper, then I'm not me. We again fall into the trap that either work is meaningless or it means everything. So here's the question. How should a Christian look at work after the fall? If we're made for work, it's, what, it's one of God's blessings, not one of his curses. But after the fall, if we're tempted to fall in these two traps, how do we look at work? And I would say this. There's different kinds of work. Just like there's different kinds of a relationship. Now, this is going to be like where it gets all really kind of technical. So there's different kinds of work, just like there's different kinds of relationships that are still good. So as an example, there are what we have. We have, we have useful friendships, right? We have useful relationships that don't really serve a purpose other than the fact that like we wouldn't have this friendship if you've ever been on a sports team, you know that while you're playing that sport, you're friends with those people on the team. It's a useful friendship. It's useful to get along with them. It's useful to have them as buddies. Why? Because you're on the same team. Or if you're in the same small group or in the same study group, it's, you get along well. Why? Because it's useful. It's useful. It's, it's very helpful to have. Or when you go into the workplace, it's great to have people that you get along with in the workplace, but those are merely friendships of utility. They're not bad. That's all they are, though. They're just relationships that are useful. Now, there's other kinds. You have um, pleasant friendships. It's basically just you're friends with someone because it's fun. they're fun to hang out with. That's it. Not because you get anything from it. Not because you go really deep. Just because they're fun people to hang out with. And all of us have those kind of, hopefully, you have those kind of people where it's just like, no, why, do you, why are you friends with them? They just know how to have fun. But if things get deep or if things get tough, like, nah, I'm just going to move on. Now, there's maybe a little shallowness there, but at the same time, that's that kind of friendship it is. Friendships of utility, friendships of like just 
happiness or joy or pleasure. That's just the kind of they are. Now, those aren't the model friendships, but they're not bad friendships. But think about this. If you reduced all friendships to useful friendships, that would simply reduce friendship itself. We'd be loving the wrong way. If we reduced all friendships to friendships of pleasure, we'd do it the wrong way. There's a higher kind. We call it virtuous friendships. And virtuous friendships are the kind where it's not just useful, it's not just pleasant, but it's the kind of friendship where you experience this union with the other person because you've given yourself over to them. Because you build each other up. Not just to use each other, but for the other person. Now, there's something similar to this in the world of work. There's, there's some labor that's just simply useful. You go to work, why? Because the job needs to get done. And some of you have this experience where it's like, okay, um, I don't know, the sewer backed up. Well, I don't want to take care of that. Okay, but somebody has to do that. So why do you go to work? Because there's a job that has to get done. Or you have a job, why? It's because I need to pay the bills. And I majored in this incredibly complicated and inspiring kind of major, but I have to work at McDonald's. Why? Because the, the person who's going to collect my rent, they don't care where the money comes from. They just need the money. And sometimes we need to have those kind of jobs. Those jobs that are simply useful. Those jobs that we all we, the only reason we do them is because we have to do them. So sometimes work is just useful. Sometimes we have jobs that are fun. And the reason you do it, not because you get paid a lot, because it's not, it's, it's fun to do. I was a camp counselor, I've said this all the time, I was a camp counselor for 10 years. I did not get paid much. In fact, we did the math once. We got paid something like 22 cents per hour. And it was like, I did it for 10 years. Because I'm independently wealthy, it's not a big deal. Um, but this kind of recognition of, I stayed there, I worked there, not because it was useful, but because it was fun. I got to hang out outside all summer and play Foursquare with little kids and play ping pong with adults. That was the extent of my job. And as long as that stayed fun, I stayed there. When it stopped being fun, it never stopped being fun. Um, <laughs> but so you have work that's simply useful. You just do it. You have work that is fun, but neither of those are the ultimate kind. Sometimes you just have to do those, but neither of those are the ultimate kind. The ultimate kind of work that God made you for is what you call like purposeful or meaningful work. That when it's connected to something that matters. Another way to say it is, um, I call it human work. Meaningful work. Work that's connected to something that matters. Because human work is connected work. Human work is connected work. The problem with kind of our life, our world, is that we've been raised in a disconnected system. Here's what I mean. If you go back and look at um, there's a guy named Adam Smith. Adam Smith is what they called the father of modern economic theory. And Adam Smith came along at the same time as the Industrial Revolution, or same time as the factory system kind of rose to be kind of prevalent. And Adam Smith had a theory about human beings. It was not that we're made for work. He was living in a very post-fall world. And Adam Smith saw human beings and he said this. He said, human beings are essentially lazy. And you will not be able to get them to work unless they absolutely have to. And the only way to incentivize them to get to work is to pay them money. And so what we're going to do is this. We're going to disconnect the pieces in the factory. And so here's a person in the factory system, and they do one thing, because that's most efficient. For one person to do one thing, the next person to do the next thing, next person to do the next thing, on that kind of assembly line deal. And the person will do this meaningless, disconnected work if you incentivize that by paying them, all, paying them enough money for them to stand there and do that. Now, we didn't just do that in the United States or in the West. We didn't just do that in the factory. But right now, in office systems, in businesses, right now, how often, and maybe as you're getting ready to get out and work, maybe you've done the internship kind of thing, 
where you get hired or you get an internship and you get hired to do one thing again and again and again. And so even though you're, I'm part of this great process or I'm part of this great mission, I'm working in the state capitol or whatever the kind of thing is, but all I'm doing is filing papers, work that's disconnected from meaning, disconnected from other people, disconnected from my free choice becomes something less than human work. But it's okay because you get paid money, unless you're an intern. <laughs> but it's okay because you get paid money. We think that's fine. Now there's a sociologist, his name is Barry Schwartz. And Barry Schwartz has challenged this and he said this, he's pointed out, actually that idea that if you just pay people enough, they'll do the job, doesn't work. Why? Because only 10% of the American workforce is engaged by their work. And the second thing is this, people thrive when, they're, when they work as human beings. People thrive. Why? Because you're made for work. So human beings thrive when they get to work like human beings, which means three things. When their work is, one, connected to a goal. Number two, when their work has a meaningful purpose. And number three, when they have some kind of autonomy, some kind of, when they get to create something, when they get to make decisions. Now again, human beings thrive when their work is human. And those three things, at least three things that need to be there, and when it's connected to a goal, when it's purposeful or meaningful, and thirdly, when they get to make decisions. And here's a couple examples. Um, when it's connected to a goal. There was a study a couple years ago of uh, college students who had to do phone solicitation of alumni. So think about how hard that would be because someday you'll be alumni and you will graduate with a mortgage um, where you owe the university for your degree. And then they're gonna say, hey, thanks for all those thousands and thousands of dollars. Would you like to give us more of your money? You know, other people go to school and that would be the worst job in the world. And so what they did to experiment with this is they, all these people are making calls. How many dozen calls an hour they had to make? Making no money. So what they did was they brought in a current student to talk to all those who are phone solicitors and to tell those phone solicitors how important the scholarships that donor, uh, donors gave were to them being able to go to college. And they just gave a personal testimony of that the people that you're gonna to talk to who will donate money are what enabled me to be on this campus and get my degree. They found out that after that person, that one person gave their testimony, basically connected the work to a goal, that the average income was raised 171%. Why? Because people work, when, when they get to work as human beings, they thrive. When you get to connect your work with a goal, you thrive. Another kind of example, again, connected to a goal, when it's meaningful or purposeful work. There was a study years ago, a woman, uh, a psychologist from Yale, did the study of janitors working in hospitals. One of the things they found was that these janitors in hospitals, they're hired, of course, like to mop the floors, hired to keep things clean. But these janitors didn't just do that. These janitors took it as their job to assist the nurses and the doctors whenever they needed help. They, were, they saw it as their job to help the patients experience an incredible um, nursing or doctoring or medical experience while in the hospital, people could say, that's not your job. And the janitors would respond by saying, no, we're here to help people get better. Well, yeah, you're here to mop the floor. No, 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 no. I mop the floor, yes. But we're here to help people get better. And these janitors were willing to work even harder than they needed to because they connected this work here with something that was purposeful, something that was meaningful, something that was worth doing. So human beings thrive when? When they get to work like human beings, when it's connected, when there's a goal, and when there's meaningful work. And the third thing, of course, when there's autonomy. Now, this is one that blows my mind. Here's a little last, second to last little story. 
this blows my mind. I remember reading about this a number of years ago in the Ritz-Carlton, so the hotel chain, the Ritz-Carlton. They want their employees to take so much ownership of their, the hotel that what the administration, the owners, the leaders of Ritz-Carlton have done is they've given virtually every one of their employees discretionary money that these employees can use to resolve guests' problems. I don't know if that makes any sense. So here's someone at the front desk. And you come down and you say, um, I forgot to bring my special shoes for my job interview. The person at the front desk doesn't, can't say, well, sorry, I can't help you. The person at the front desk has been given, authorized to spend up to $2,000 of discretionary funds without consulting anybody whatsoever to help a guest have an incredible stay. And what they found is that when these people have this ability to create, this ability to solve problems, this ability to make decisions, that they feel like they're working with a human being, and what do they do? They thrive. Because we're made for work. Because work is not a curse. Work is a blessing. So it's a blessing, though, when it has these three elements. When it's connected to a goal, when it's meaningful or purposeful, when you have the ability to create or to make decisions, autonomy. And yet, this is the last thing. Yet, of course, work is hard. Like we all know that, right? Like even when you love your job, I love my job. It's hard sometimes. I have to, you guys I have to get up so early on Sundays. I get to sleep in the rest of the week, but on Sundays, it's so hard. Um, but work, all work, if you're going to do it, if it's meaningful, it's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to feel like drudgery sometimes. And, and if I'm a person who says like, no, all work stinks from a person who says my work has to fulfill me. I'm never going to get this right. But if you understand this, it'll, it'll change your life. If you understand that every single job that you do, every single job that you and I do, if we know we're made for work, then all it is is a matter of perspective. To connect it to the goal, to let, realize there's meaning there, and to be able to create and make whatever kind of decisions we can, changes everything. Again, work was meant to be a blessing. We experienced it as a curse, but it can be more than that. Originally, God said, be a co-creator with me. But because of the fall, the world had to be redeemed. So your work is not merely co-creating. Your work is now co-redeeming. Here's what I mean. We know how the story went down in Genesis chapter 3. After God made work a blessing and the world a blessing and love a blessing and leisure a blessing, there was sin and there was the consequence. And the consequence of sin, God said, okay, from now on, you're going to work and it's going to be tough. From the sweat of your brow you will live. You're going to work amongst the thorns and the thistles. It's going to be hard. And we can look at that and think that that's a curse. That's not a curse. It's a remedy. Because why? Because here's Adam and here's Eve. And they failed to go outside of themselves. They failed to love. They failed to move for the other person. That's why in Genesis, or that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, today in the second reading, it says, God gave you all these gifts for the benefit of others. So when you get a chance to work, it's meant to be for the benefit of others. Even if it's hard, it's not just co-creative, it's co-redemptive. Because as often as I work in those thorns and thistles, as often as I show up for work, as often as I do the work, even if it's tedious or if it's meaningful, it's not just co-creative, I'm part of the redemptive work of God. And this is the final story. So, many, so often it's just our perspective. There was a, a nurse I was talking to, a lot of hospital stuff these days. A nurse I was talking to, and she said that one night she was assigned overnight to sit with a patient, and just the, per- the patient was sleeping, the first patient was sedated, and just, she just had to sit there and monitor the patient's vitals the entire night. Her entire shift 
I think it might have been 10-hour, 12-hour shift. The entire shift, she had to just sit there and monitor the patient's vitals. And she sat there and she was like, this is ridiculous. I became a nurse to help people, not to babysit someone, not to just sit here and watch someone sleep. And she realized, wait, this person is sleeping here, this person is sedated because they tried to commit suicide. And she sat there, she changed her perspective. She could have said, this is disconnected, this is meaningless, this doesn't mean anything. She actually connected it to, made it human work. It made it not only creative, but redemptive. She said, here's a human being, someone who's made in God's image just like me, who hours ago tried to take their own life. And now here I get to sit next to them and keep watch over them. Not only that, she's a Catholic Christian. She said, I get to sit with them, keep watch over them, and actually pray for them. This work of just simply sitting here and looking over, watching over, praying over a patient was not disconnected. It was completely connected. She was able to thrive in this. Why? Because we thrive when we work as human beings. She was able to be part not only of God's creative work, but also his redemptive work. So here's my invitation. All week we have to work, every one of us. And it's fantastic. But we do. We get to work. We get to work, all of us, this entire week. My invitation is this. Work like a human being. Work like someone who's made in God's image and likeness. Work like, like someone who's made to work. Work like someone who's not looking for work as drudgery and not working for, looking for work as fulfillment, but looking at work as it's part of God's co-creative and co-redemptive, meaningful plan to build up this creation and to redeem people within them for their entire lives. My promise is this. If we do this this week, we'll be working not only like human beings, we'll be working like followers of Christ. Thank you for listening and for being such an incredible part of uh, basically our, what I like to consider as our online congregation. I really want to be able to serve you through this um, through this means, through social media, through our website, and through this podcast. Would you be able to help me do that? Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, a good friend, he set up a survey online. Actually, a number of people contributed to this. I'm so grateful for other podcast listeners who contributed to this survey. Now, he put us, crafted a survey, and um, our web people put it, it on our homepage. So if you go to bulldogcatholic.org, on the top of that, like the header bar, kind of the, the top bar, it says, please take the survey. If you're part of the online community, click here. If you're part of the local UMB community, click here. If you wouldn't mind, in the next week or two, actually even right now, if you wouldn't mind going to bulldogcatholic.org, clicking on that header and just taking that survey. It's very, very brief. It's very, very brief. But what it can do is it can help us, help me get a good sense of kind of like who, who are we talking to? Who are we serving? Because I just want this to be as, as um, I want these podcasts to be as helpful to you as humanly possible and divinely possible. And one of the things that helps me is if I know just a little bit more about who you are. So again, please, if you wouldn't mind doing, doing me this favor, go to www.bulldogcatholic.org and just click on take our survey for the online community. It, it probably wouldn't take you any more than two minutes. Um, be super grateful. And um, I think it would really ultimately help us make this podcast even better. Once again, I cannot begin to express how grateful I am for your prayers and your past support.
please know that whenever I pray, you are in my prayers. God bless.